0: Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I am the Bill Arnold part of that short sentence. I've got a great show for you today. Jay Warner Wallace is going to be joining me in just a minute. And then we're going to continue our Old Testament series with Jarrett Stevens. We're going to talk about Elijah today. So looking forward to that. And I'm awfully glad that I can get a chance once a month to talk to Jim. He, as you know, is the former cold case detective and an amazing author, speaker, communicator. And you can go to coldcasechristianity.com to learn more about Jim. He's also got a brand new book out called Person of Interest why Jesus still matters in a world that rejects the Bible. And that is going to be a great Christmas gift if you're have someone on your list that you don't know what to get. This would be a fantastic book to figure out a way to get it into a stocking. I don't know if that'll fit, but you can go to personofinterestbook.com to download a sample chapter and learn more about that book. personofinterestbook.com. Jim, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I look forward to it. You know, I just realized that when we were together, at the conference this month, earlier this month, um, well, it was actually last month now, Remember, uh, uh, I just yeah. realized that we didn't get a picture together, not which was probably good because I saw that you didn't even bother to comb your hair or shit. Or anything, so. <laughs> exactly. It was a Saturday. I'm not getting dressed up on a That's Saturday. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. I don't blame
0: you. Yeah. So as we look at uh, everything going on in the world, I, is there any topic that you'd like to start talking about? Because i got a list of stuff I always want to run by you. So I'm always,
1: with, fr- I'm always afraid
0: yeah, yeah, um,
1: whats you, what you're going to bring up, but yeah. I think... What, I'm willing to just kind of trust you and, okay. just, and see where it lands. So what do you got for me? Just well, out there. I,
0: just as far as what's going on in the news right now, I did find uh, w- what's happening in Michigan with this poor, horrible incident at the Oxford High School where there, this kid yeah. shot and killed three students. Of course, we know nothing about the shooter. And I don't know if uh, in police work what you would uh, consider that is that how is that not leaked out at this point?
1: Well, you're glad. I mean, if if you're in law enforcement, you're glad it's not, right? Because um, all that kind of information is not your friend. You you try to give the press what you need to give the press in order uh, to satisfy the bare minimums. But not do something that you know, because you don't know at first when you do an investigation what's going to be critical. And sure enough, if you you know as some weird tangential piece of information that you think, "Well, this is this is going to be safe to release." I mean, how is this going to affect the future investigation? Well, it does. It, it often does. And then you feel like the idiot because you release that information a bit too soon. So what you're really doing is not trying to penalize the press or penalize. You know, you're not trying to be a jerk. What you're really trying to do is make sure you protect. Uh, kind of unforeseen twists and turns in the future investigation, and that's really tricky, right? And a lot of times, you know, the guy who's uh, or the gal who's been, uh, you know, uh, charged with solving the crime or investigating the case or or helping assemble the case that the prosecutor later on will eventually charge, uh, that person is not the same person who's in charge of the press release. You know, that's going to be an adjutant to the chief. That's going to be somebody in the community relations uh, department of, of you know office of the department. And and those folks are like constantly contacting the I.O. the investigating officer and saying, Well, what can I release? What can I release? What can I release? Well, the I.O. is gonna say, Don't release anything. I don't know what you can release right now. I don't. I don't. I'm still too early in this. I don't want to. You know, we don't want, We don't want people repeating back to us what they heard on a press release. No, good point you know we want people to give us the information that we then we can say well yeah they couldn't have heard this on, online we didn't release this this is such stuff that if they're telling us this is probably legitimate um so a lot of this is just trying to and and because the investigating officer is not the guy who's your your um community relations uh you know your um your public information officer the PIO uh, because they're two different people it's it can be tricky right because um you, you, have, you it depends on what how much communication there is between the PIO and the IO
0: Hmm. That's oh, so, so interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and I guess, and I've had cases like this where that because you don't know, and and you make mistakes early in your career, you just have a tendency to want to say, "I'm not going to say, look, you guys do what you got to do." But in my opinion, don't tell them anything yet because I just don't know where this is going to. And and, and what, what's it matter if if you know it, there's like this challenge between is it better to be first on the story? Or better to be correct on the story, and, yeah. and, and depending on the media outlet, there's there's not a big distinction between those two. A lot for a lot of folks, it's like I don't care if this is correct or not; I just care that we're first to say something because it's clicks. So, so you know, as a, as, a, as an investigating agency, you don't want to be involved in any of that at all. Uh, that is not your concern about whether you get clicks, who's first. You know, it ought, it ought not be your concern. Mm-hmm. It has to be. It's just the, the end is: did we properly see justice in a case? When we filed the case with the DA, when we got all the way to a jury, and what do we have to do along the way to make sure that we don't corrupt the case?
0: Mm-hmm. Jim, what about things like Columbine, though, and Sandy Hook? I mean, we heard about that shooter right away.
1: Well, this doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I'm just saying if it's me and it's my case, I'm going to say to you, don't say anything. Okay. Unless I feel like some. Uh, I need, have a public need to, to um, get more information. I'm at wit's end. Uh, without the public's help, we cannot go forward. We cannot identify some. That's different. But a lot of times what we're really doing is is trying to satisfy a kind of salacious hunger for information that they can clickbait. And so I'm just trying to be careful about that kind of thing. There are times when, when you just don't have any choice because you, you really need the public to help you with something. Yeah. That's different. you know. But yeah, you, you will see this happens a lot where somebody will release information. And a lot of that's because there are people within agencies that feel really good about their relationship with the press. They feel like it gives them a position of power. Uh, like, hey, I'm the source for this, you'll come back to me. Um, but I, that just, that's pretty rare, and I think for the most part, most of us would say less is more when it comes to information early in an investigation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Jim, you came to Faith in Christ, uh, you were formerly, formerly an atheist. What about helping religious people come to Christ? Because I think that's maybe the toughest sell.
1: Well, so, so ask that again. You broke up for a second. I'm sorry. Yeah. You, no. You
0: you came to faith in Christ uh, yeah. as an atheist. Yeah. And I think helping uh, the religious come to faith in Christ might be even a tougher sell than dealing no. with someone who's an atheist.
1: Yeah. No. I I think that you're you're there's a good and bad things about having no background with the church. <laughs> yeah. Having no um, um, experience with the church, uh, and one of the good things about it is is that you are a clean slate. Um, I didn't have any positive, or, or I had some negative kind of connotations in my head, some presuppositions in my head, and some of those were based on contacts I had with atheists. I mean, with, with uh, Christians when I was an atheist. Uh, but a lot of it is, you know, I don't didn't know what the politics of a church are like. I didn't know what denominations were. You know, like why are there denominations? I never thought about these kinds mm-hmm. of things. I never knew what 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 it was like to be part of a church family. I didn't have baggage from a church family. I didn't have to. You know, I don't want to go back in that situation because I had such a terrible experience. I didn't have a terrible experience. I was not never in a church. So there's a sense in which you're putting your toe in the water for the first time. Maybe that's easier. I mean you're fighting two kinds of things, right? Sometimes in places in the world and the country, like here in Los Angeles County, it feels like sometimes you're just trying to get people to pay attention to the things that really are important because there is no culture – it doesn't feel like there's a much of a cultural – kind of traditional, uh, culturally accepted view of God, like there might be in the South, for example, where some of my family, on one side of my family, they were kind of raised in a Christian environment. They they went to church every Sunday, and so the issue there is not – it's really more about apathy, cultural apathy within the church, right? Than it is mm-hmm. so much about the unchurch needing to get to hear the gospel for the first time. These are folks who have heard the gospel so often and so long, so long that it's kind of like you know their preference in, in side dishes at a barbecue. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not. It's not it's, there's times when I'm really excited about that, uh-huh. times when I'm not. Um, but it's, so for somebody who's really been away from all of it, I was more um, starved for what is true about God. You know, because I didn't, didn't this was my first time putting my foot in the water.
2: Yeah.
0: I always scratch my head when I read polls, and there's a, a poll or a survey that 73% of Americans believe in heaven, Well, 62% believe in hell. And I thought, well, I wonder That's what...
1: That's per- really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it yeah. is, because mm-hmm. and I
0: wonder what percentage of these Americans that believe in heaven are actually Christians, because there are a lot of non-believers uh, that go, well, I'm a good person, I've lived a good life, so if there's a good God and in, in a good place, I'll go there. I believe in that.
1: Yeah, you know, and I'll tell you, this is why um, you're seeing a shift in uh, belief within the church, right? And what you see a lot is that what we define as Christianity, like who's in and who's out. Right. I mean, think about that. I mean, so what does surprise you? That even people within the church are far more inclined to believe that there is something good that God is offering them— that the, there is some potential future judgment that God is offering them. Of course, there's going to be a lot more people who are going to be happy to believe that there's a heaven than there are going to be to believe There's a hell, even within the people who are now. A lot of this comes down to is, um, you know, how how often do the words of Scripture ring in your ear when you're considering any claim? And for a lot of us, the words of Scripture never ring in our ear because we've never read the words of Scripture. I mean, we just we we are in a church where maybe we are not going line by line, and that's probably the only time we're ever opening a Bible, anyway, is to do those five verses of Scripture this week. Um, we're not; um, we wouldn't even know where to go, or does, has God ever spoken about that in Scripture? Most of us are not well versed in that. We know what we like, what we want, what we don't want, but we don't really have the words of of Scripture ringing in our ear to say, "Well, yeah, I don't like it," but you know, I, I can think of like at least three or four places in Scripture. Where Jesus talks about hell as if it's a reality, <laughs> you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And because they don't have those words ringing in their ears, they 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 are. It's it's really easy to to say, well, maybe I can redefine some of these things, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and 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 even even in those, like, how many times do you hear people say, well, you know, Jesus never talked about X. Jesus never talked about gender identity, so maybe this is something we can reinterpret in light of our current situation. You know, or, or, you know, Paul was never aware of modern science and modern behavioral analysis and all kinds of modern psychology and all these things. That, so maybe we can reinterpret in the context of 2021 uh, what really Scripture would say. Do you, so you see the problem? Oh, yeah, it's very and, dangerous. And yeah, it's pretty it's pretty dangerous. And, and because you really haven't been—you're really not even well catechized to know— is it true that Jesus has never said anything about X, you know, because, um, you know, you read through the Gospels once, you know, 15 years ago, right. and you haven't <laughs> revisited them since. And so now you're, you're just kind of going on memory of – and let's face it, um, what we want is a very powerful driving force, right? What we yes. want you yes. know, rather than what is true. Uh, what we want is pretty powerful. And there's lots of things that if I could say, well, I wish this wasn't so. Mm-hmm. There's lots of places I would say that I feel that way about, yeah, I wish this wasn't so. I wish God hadn't, didn't feel that, you know, that, yeah, I, I can say that there's lots of places where I, I kind of feel that way, mm-hmm. but I don't get to make those choices. Yeah. You know, so.
0: Let me anyway. take a short break. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest in his latest book, which is out and you can uh, order it right now. is called Person of Interest. Um. You can go to personofinterestbook.com, download the first chapter, get a sample, and then you can uh, make plans as to who you're going to want to gift this to this uh, Christmas uh, season, especially someone who's maybe not uh, in a solid place in their walk with Christ. Maybe they they don't know Jesus. This would be a great uh, book to get them and to uh, maybe get a copy for yourself and read it together. We'll take a short break and be right back. back to the show. I'm so glad to have Jay Warner Wallace as my guest today. You can always go to coldcasechristianity.com to learn more about Jim. He's got lots of videos up there and blogs, and all of his books are there as well. You can learn about that. And also his new book, which is a fantastic book called Person of Interest. You can go to personofinterestbook.com to learn more about that. So, uh, Jim, I have to say, guess who just walked into the studio and sat down?
1: Exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah, I was lingering uncomfortably outside of the studio, so I'm glad he invited me in, Jim. I was, was getting awkward. I didn't, there.
0: I didn't expect you to nail that one so fast. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, good
1: to hear your voice. Um, um, just, yeah, we had a chance to sit and talk, and I thought we we're all kindred spirits on some of these issues. But yeah. you know what I thought? And you know, people, I thought he, he was going to ask me. I thought that, you know, Bill, I thought you were going to ask me about. Um, you know, whenever we have a big school shooting or a mass shooting of any of these kinds of tragedies, uh, which I don't don't consider to be tragedies like, you know, an asteroid hit the Earth, this is this is moral evil. This is this is a suspect who has a name, and I'm glad sometimes that we don't spend a lot of time highlighting the identity. Of some of these suspects, um, I, I understand why it 's important, and why right now there 's a big controversy about who whose identity we 're willing to talk about in certain um, acts of terror or certain uh, homicidal acts, and whose identity we 're not willing to talk about. I get all that, but from a law enforcement perspective, I know that part of the that, that I, I've worked, guys, where when we finally got them at the end of the spree and we did the search warrant at their house, we found all the press clippings they had kept from the first crime they, they committed all the way to the end. They were reading their own press clippings. Oh. They, they, they were cognizant of the fact that their story would be told, and they would be in a different category if, if they ended up going to jail some of these guys were would take those press clippings in with them, in other words, not they wouldn't take them, but they would talk about them once they were in custody, in other words, that they were that guy um and so I just think that we we have to do our best to minimize the role that that type of glory seeking has on on everybody and I know that especially in the social media world it's i mean i'm I'm talking about back when we would like people would write newspaper articles, okay, about the crimes, and that was the only thing you had. There was no social media where you could have thousands of people speaking about you and writing posts about you, one way or the other. And and communities, bizarre little nichey, weird communities, they would actually elevate you because of your criminal behavior, right? So, so I mean, it was really different then than it is now. But there is a sense in which I just think we we need to minimize that. But but I, at some point, what we're going to see. Is that there's a cause for this kind of thing, right? And then a the debate becomes, well, is the cause just our our gun ownership in in, in America is the cause? You know, what is it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're going to see a spectrum of responses in terms of of. And I think what what we are not talking about typically, because it's a much more nuanced, difficult conversation. It's really easy to say, well, if there was was no gun then there would not be a shooting. In any shooting, you could say that. Uh, here's what I see, though. Um, if you just look at statistics and just Google it, and there's a number of different websites that keep national statistics of either, the number of mass shootings, and, of course, how you define mass shooting is going to be important, but the point is the number of shootings over the last 40 years. And then you can take a look at gun ownership percentage, you know, number of guns out there. Owned by So as as the community grows, of course, then gun ownership has to grow in order to keep pace with it, right? But the point is you can see gun ownership over the same period of time. And here's what I would expect if this is purely just a gun issue is that I would expect there to be like a one-to-one ratio. The more guns that are in circulation percentage-wise in the population, the more mass shootings we would have. But if I'm looking at two statistics here on a site called Statista… The number of mass shootings in the United States between 1982 and November of of 2021, um, they definitely pop up. And you'll see that the rise, it seems like it's kind of an ebb and flow kind of a thing until about 2010, 2011. And then you see a pretty remarkable increase in these kinds of shootings. So you see that starting right around 2011-ish, 2012, you can see. And I think that if you don't trust my source for this, I, I don't blame you. Just look at you find any source, a national source that keeps this kind of data, and you'll see that it's a kind of an ebb and flow until you get to that point. Then take a look at another chart, Gun, a percentage of households in the United States owning one or more firearms from 1972 to 2021. Well, if you go back to the lowest rate of, of mass shootings, which is like in the early 80s, 83, 85, have zero, you know, there's, there's a lot, not much going on in the early 80s. Well, gun ownership in the early 80s was right around 45 ish percent, 44, 45. In uh, 1990, it was 47 percent. Uh, right now, it's at 42 percent. So, I, I would expect to see, and if you look at the actual chart of gun ownership, it actually goes down from the 80s rather than up, while mass shootings go up from the 80s rather than down. So, what is going on here? And there, I mean, I, I, I'm, I totally understand our, our first impulse is to say, you know, um, the gun is the problem. Um, and so, I'm not going to debate that issue. What I'm looking at statistically, though, is there seems to be something else. And I think you see two things in that period of time. What you see, and we have moved away in the last 40 years, this entire period, from the intact traditional family. That, that is deteriorating right around our eyes, both inside and outside the church. It is deteriorating, and, and we just act like that's not going to have an impact on all the things that would worry us. But, of course, it is going to have an impact. Uh, and also we see that in that 2011 issue, you see the increase in the use of social media is um, the, the advent of this type of social media, right, and the, the plethora of this kind of social media where you see all this stuff now is – social media is always a factor um, in, the, in the way this communication – so, for example, we have an event that occurs anywhere in the country that used to be a local event. All those local events are now national events because of social media. Mm-hmm. So, so I think we've got to kind of at least ask ourselves deeper questions about why we're headed where we're headed. And they probably have more to do, because it's just. By the way, the same statistics I think you probably would look at would probably deal with drug overdoses, would probably deal all the other problems we see in in families, all the other problems we see in culture. I mean, you could, you know, you can talk, you can try to rein it back in by eliminating all drugs, eliminating all guns, eliminating all cars, anything you could use to. But we're still going to have the problems because we're not addressing the core issues. And I think a lot of those come down to the family.
0: Mm-hmm. Jim, why don't these stats, the ones that you just mentioned, why, do, why don't why do they drive the narrative?
1: Well, because I, I think that all of us have politicized everything. So if I've got an opportunity, if I've got a, an agenda, a political agenda, whether I'm on the right or the left, and I want to advance the agenda, I will find a way to take every event – and spin it in such a way that it advances my predetermined agenda. Both sides are doing this. We're all doing it. We are not more social because of social media. We should be calling this what it is. It's either it's, it's social marketing for most of us. You know, I'm an author. I mean, I, I don't, I'm a cop, so I don't trust social media, but I, I know that <laughs> if I want people to, to see what we're talking about when it comes to Jesus, we're gonna have to use social media to leverage the gospel on social media. So it's really kind of like social marketing, you know, social gospeling, right? That's what we're doing with it. But for a lot of us, is just, it's just tribal uh, media. We have become so entrenched in our positions. We don't trust the other side at all. We just use – all of these media platforms are just hammers looking for nails, and that's what we do. We, we, we just uh, use these things as a platform in which to scream at the other side. It's not helping us as a nation. It's not. It's not helping our families. It's not it's, – what, what, you know, look, it used to be you drive by your neighbor. You didn't know what your neighbor believed on any number of, of sensitive issues. You just waved sweetly at your neighbor. You were just glad you had the neighbors you had. Mm -hmm. Well, now if you're watching their social media, you know every position they hold. You either love that neighbor or hate him because that dude does not agree with you on a lot of these big issues. I think sometimes it was better not to know every single inclination or every single political leaning of these folks that that you were willing to accept because you know we've just put all of our differences on steroids.
0: Yeah, it's – It is so true, the emotion that is out there right now and your point about the neighbors. I mean, if you move into a new neighborhood, everybody Googles you to find out who you are. No, I ab-
1: absolutely. I they mean, they
0: know more about you before you open your mouth.
1: Well, I mean, look—you've got you, the, the people used to be on your Facebook. If you're using old person using Facebook still. Okay? <laughs> but the point is, your, you're, you, you know, your relatives. That, that. How many times have I hear a story? Well, yeah, I posted this on my face, and I'm so mad that my cousin said this back. To, well, now you're not speaking to your cousin. That wasn't that wasn't happening before. You'd have to be with your cousin for eight hours on a holiday and find a way into that conversation before mm-hmm. it would even come up. Well, well, now it, we're all leading with that. That's the first thing we do Yeah, is we post our political beefs with each other. Look, this is not me posting family pictures anymore. Right. This is now me showing you why you're wrong. Yeah. All
0: right, Jim, we need to take a little break when we come back. Peter's dying to talk. I don't know why, but we'll bring him <laughs> on at some point. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. And go to coldcasechristianity.com. Be right back. you can go go to coldcasechristianity.com. He also has a brand new book out, which you will want to get a copy of, and then you're going to want to buy a second or third copy to give uh, as gifts this Christmas. It's Person of Interest. You can go to personofinterestbook.com. I promise, uh, download the sample chapter, and you're going to instantly go, yep, I want to buy this, and buy it more than once. So, uh, Jim, welcome uh, Peter once again. He's, you know, He's in my second hour today, and he showed up early. There's no extra pay for him, but
2: here he is.
1: That's
2: good. Yeah. Isn't that nice? We're all getting paid the
0: same. Piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's true. I know.
2: They, they could double it; it'd be the same, Jim. So exactly. yeah, that's I mean. That's right. So here's,
0: a, here's right. a question we can chew on. Um, and
1: look how fast he changes the subject. I know. I know.
0: So, um, um, how do we explain to non-believers about the Bible being authoritative and relevant? If we as Christians cannot agree with what it means, a lot of the time.
1: Well, I think it's about okay. So we don't agree. What do we? What do we not agree about? That's a big issue, right? We don't agree typically about, hopefully, about non-essential issues, which can seem like they're really important. They're, these are the kinds of things that bring a lot of, you know, a lot of heat, if not a lot of light. Uh, we, we we can get caught up in these. Um, you know, right, right now, for example, there's a lot of talk going on in, in theolo- theological corners about, the, who, you know, what exactly, how do we interpret who Adam, who is Adam, and, and are you know, how much in this, he's just, I'm not going to get into the entire discussion about it, but I just came back from the last week or two weeks ago was the Evangelical Theological Society's week-long meeting. It was in Fort Worth. I was just there for the EPS, which is the Philosophical Society's uh, apologetics conference on Thursday night. A little while in there, I'm kind of hearing the buzz that had been going on all week about this discussion this year, raised by a new book It really kind of talks about how do we interpret genesis again so so look, so the question becomes um are we are we allowed to can we agree to disagree? i guess that's the question about non essential issues and and i 'll tell you there's there's brothers and sisters in the, in the faith that that um, don't seem like we can actually ever, maybe it's part of the social media conditioning we have now, that it's really harder now to, for us to agree to disagree about what we both agree is a non essential issue. And because at some point, whatever the non essential issue is, let's say it's an end times thing, like you've got a view of end times that's different than my view of end times. At some point, one of us is going to say, well, yeah, I know it's non essential. But really it is kind of essential because if you don't believe what I believe about this, then this leads to another domino theologically that falls over here. So somehow everyone's non-essential issue becomes an essential issue for them. And then we we just want to fight about them. Um, And this is, by the way, not just true for Christians. This is true for every holder of every worldview because we all have one thing in common. We are these nasty little things called humans, and we are by nature disagreeable. So you put us in any room, in any worldview, we'll find something to disagree about, because that's what we are. But so, yeah, so is it true that Christians often disagree? Now, for the most part, we would say the overarching fundamentals of the Christian faith. Who is Jesus? How are we saved? What is the nature of God? Did the resurrection occur? These are kinds of things that we would say there are some essentials. And this is why you'll find these essentials popping up historically over and over and over again in the historic creeds. And they start early, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, you keep on going. And these creeds become more robust only because they're typically responding to heresies that are popping up in the church where someone says, well, then can Jesus be this? And like, no, actually, no, you're stepping too far off. Now we're going to have to make part of that. You know, Let's be clear about that too. But there's a lot of stuff that you won't find in a creed that is – and we still argue about that stuff too. And so the question becomes then, well, okay, so so what is it? Just our nature to be argumentative? Probably, uh, but what we would say is, that just if you think that your Christians are disagreeing with each other, that's probably true, but it's probably not about an essential. It's probably about a non-essential. So we want to have like you know we always talk about having charity in the non-essentials, um, and having liberty to to, to hold to different opinions in the non-essential issues, and then having charity with one another when we do.
2: Jim, I often say that uh, the scripture is authoritative, but maybe a given interpretation of that scripture is not necessarily authoritative because people look at it and they, and they come to two different conclusions. What, do you have any sort of reliable method if, if you're going to change your mind about a scripture insofar as you've understood it and said, well, maybe I had a misunderstanding all along? Because I can think of several passages that I understood one way for the, for a number of years and then all of a sudden thought, huh, I think actually the evidence leans a different direction.
1: Yeah, well, let me give you an example of this. Let's, let's go to let's just let's just go to kick the fire the hornet's nest a little bit. <laughs> you know, okay, one of these issues, right? So I have friends who are annihilationists. Okay, they believe that um, souls are destroyed at the second at the you know, final judgment. That those who are condemned will not. Uh, they don't believe in eternal conscious torment in hell. They believe instead that uh, those souls that are not um, have not accepted Jesus as Lord are utterly destroyed, annihilated. Um, So that's their view. Now, now, you might say, well, okay, if you're somebody, for example, who's never considered that view, and you are somebody who's com- committed to a, a more, more traditional view, which is the eternal conscious torment view, uh, you might say, well, that's just ridiculous, you know. But, but here's how they're coming to that position they're coming to it by examining Scripture and making a case from collecting the evidence of Scripture. And you might say, well, no, no. And so then you're like talking about, well, what does this word destroy mean in the original language? And how is it being used here? And, the, and now both sides are collecting sets of evidence. To say, well, no, I think that the biblical evidence is, is better inferred in this direction than it is in that direction. And that's how we end up in these places. And so there are lots of places where you would say, well, look, here's like – got 50 verses over here that support my position. you got two. Would it be wise for me to interpret – the two in light of the fifty—that means it makes sense. Or do I interpret the fifty in light of the two? I mean, which of, which is a better way to interpret the verses? But here's the problem: a lot of us don't even take an evidential approach about anything in Scripture. Like we don't—that's not who we are. We, we you know, it's, we are—we experience things. Uh, we we don't think that this is a thinking man's uh, kind of uh, belief system. Sometimes we don't act like it is, and and so this idea that you would actually form beliefs on the basis of biblical evidence, for a lot of people still in the church, seems a bit foreign. But that's exactly how we come to these conclusions. And so what I would typically say is, okay, so here's how do we resolve these issues? Let's make a case for it. Now, I will tell you on that issue of eternal conscious torment, I still hold to the eternal conscious torment view. But I look at the biblical evidence too, and I find it to be rather compelling. I hold it with my hand open. Like I don't know for sure because I think the biblical case, the scriptural case for annihilationism, I, I see it. And, and I – look, and I, I don't get involved in that. You won't see me debating that online. You won't see that as part of my work primarily. I mean I still – you'll find things on hell on my website that are still – take the eternal conscious torment perspective. But you won't see me debating my brothers over that issue because I find it to be a non-essential. I could be right or wrong about this. God will judge, and he will act. Now is he going to act by destroying souls or by putting? I don't know yet. I, I I think he's going to be eternal conscious torment. But 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 if I'm wrong about that, I don't. It won't change what Jesus came to do, and it won't change my view of God's nature. So I just don't debate publicly those kinds of things because I think it's not it's not enough. Someone said I don't think that Jesus is God and I don't think he rose from the dead. Well, I'm gonna. Make I'm going to be—I'll argue on that, okay, because those are <laughs> essentials that I think make a difference. I mean, you, yeah, how can you call yourself a Christian if you don't believe that? So we have to make a decision about what's an essential and what's not. Can you see why this is going to be harder going forward in a culture that says everything is a matter of lived experience? Huh. Mm. That, that nothing is objectively grounded in something outside of my lived experience? And while you might find that's true for you, Jim, it's not true for me. Yeah, I'm right. And I can see this is going to be harder going forward to hold a view, but the entire history of Christendom is replete with creeds developed in an effort to kind of thumbnail what is being expressed in Scripture. What are the objective truths of the Christian worldview that we ought to agree on? And I think that if we move away from that, we've, we we lose everything.
0: Mm-hmm. Jim, do you find the majority of biblical scholars to be fair-minded, or do so many uh, have agendas? And, and how do you know who to trust?
1: Oh, my gosh, just a couple of big questions there. Uh, so so I, I just bought all of the—I'm um, getting ready to write another book, and I'm look, writing it basically on biblical anthropology. Uh, there'll, there'll just be some aspect of that will be in there. Um, You know, what does the Bible say about humans? So I I went back, and I've given away so many systematic theologies. I only have one left, and that's Erickson's uh, Christian theology. So I went back, and I bought, you know, Grudem's um, systematic theology, uh, you know, um, a a stack of them sitting here. And um, the (laughs) thing I gave away over the last, you know, several years I bought back. And I'm looking at all of these, and I'm thinking, okay, so why do I trust these guys? Well, that's why I have so many. So what I'm looking at is the, the, what what differences do theologians how do we land on these issues? And what's great about systematic theologies is that they have is that you've got theologians who have grouped together all of the concepts like here's what the Bible says about humans, here's what the Bible says about Jesus, here's the, you know, they've they've taken the topics and they've grouped their thinking in a systematic way, so they've presented a systematic theology. And so what I love is to be able to read I I won't distrust one. I'll read them all. And 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 there's going to be places where there's just wholesale agreement, and that's because probably this is an essential issue that's so clear in Scripture that it's hard to find an alternative. And there'll be some places where there's less agreement. Because you can make a case in one direction or the other. Like how do we land the, uh, God's sovereignty versus our free agency, right? This has been a 2,000-year you know, debate, and you've got people who hold a more libertarian view who are making their case from Scripture and people who hold a very much reformed view, which are making their case from Scripture. And this goes back and forth. And, and it's really so, how do you where do you land on that? Well, I think what you have to do is I trust data, I don't trust in people who make inferences from data. It's like science science doesn't say anything, scientists do. Science is neutral. I mean, the facts are the facts. How you interpret the facts, though, that depends on the scientist you're talking to. So, same is true for theology I mean, the, the, the facts of Scripture are there. Know your Scripture. How we interpret the scriptures, and different theologians come from different you know, worldviews, different you – know, even within Christianity, and they will interpret those things slightly different. So what I'm looking at in my systematic theology is, okay, if I'm studying the nature of humans and the, what does it mean to be in the image of God, I'm going to read everybody. And then I'm going to like highlight all of those scriptures from which these everybody's made inferences. And then I'm going to make my own inference. We tell this to juries all the time. You don't have to listen to our experts or their experts. You are free to return to the evidence we showed you and make your own inference. We bring these people in, but look, our expert told you the exact opposite of what their expert told you the
2: exact same <laughs> evidence. Okay.
1: So you're going to have to make a decision based on the evidence, and you can use this thing that judges use this expression all the time. You can use your common sense. So have enough common sense, but do the work. You know, if you can have all the common sense in the world, but if you haven't been listening to the evidence for the last 10 weeks, you can't make a decision. So if you can have all the common sense in the world, but if you haven't been reading your Bible, you, you can't make a good decision because you don't even know what the evidence is.
0: That's so good. Uh, we'll take one more break. Jay Warner Wallace is our guest today. You can go to coldcasechristianity.com, to learn more about Jim. He's also got a fantastic new book out. You can go to personofinterestbook.com to learn more about that. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Jay Warner Wallace is our guest. Coldcasechristianity.com is his website. He's also, his new book is Person of Interest. I do highly recommend you going to com. You can download a sample chapter and uh, make your decision from there. Examine the evidence and then decide. Something like that, right?
1: Yeah, that's actually you delivered that you turned that corner really well. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you. If I don't if you don't mind Jim going back to this I- incident that we started talking about with this a young boy at this high school at open fire, are we ever going to be able to talk about uh the n- presence of evil in the world that's going on in the lives of uh these shooters and are we just going to say oh the poor kid was bullied he was getting back at people who were not nice to him but what what about evil?
1: Yeah, and I don't know enough about this this suspect's uh, individual story. Yeah, maybe not know. this story in yeah, particular, know, but know, you know right. in general. But here's what I think is so interesting. We always go to the last um the last object in the in the in the line of objects that involved in a crime, you know. So so and we want to deal with that. Like we don't want to start at the beginning of the dominoes. We want to go to that last domino that falls. The last domino here is that a gun fires a bullet. And so we we start there, and we say, okay, we got to get rid of the guns that fire bullets. And, you know, we it's it's it, uh, interestingly when the SUV, how many times do we see the story that an SUV ran over people in Waukesha, right? That's that's how um, that that crime occurred. When of course there's a person behind the wheel, there's a person behind the trigger, but there's a person also has a history of a bunch of things that occurred in their life before they got behind the wheel or before before they got the gun in their pocket. And so we we never want to start at the beginning of the domino chain to see like that's very complex. You know, it's so much easier to just eliminate the end of the domino chains because then we can create a safe world. This is also, I think, been part of our struggle with dealing with COVID nineteen, right? We we want to get to the end of the domino chain. You know, just, if if we just can, if if it's, it's contact with somebody else who had COVID that gets you sick, then we just got to eliminate any contact with anybody else who has COVID without kind of dealing at the core issues at the beginning. And the same thing is true here, right, where we know there's something that causes these kinds of crimes. And and do we, how do we, we can eliminate these kinds of crimes a couple of ways. Number one, we could, this is what's happening in our state, if we want to have fairness and we think that any number of people are being unfairly uh, uh, prosecuted for crimes, and then we can eliminate that by simply eliminating crimes. We can call things that used to be criminal. We can call those things legal now. And there will be less people who will go to jail for those things now because the, the, it's, it's just legal. And that's not the way to do it. But to go back to the beginning of the problem, like what is it that causes us to get involved in a criminal lifestyle to begin with, You know, it is going to come down to – our families – I hate to come back to that, but I'm, I'm telling you, if there's one – I always say this. If there's one thing you could to talk about that would change the world, it's the gospel. The gospel cures every kind of stupid. There's no doubt about that. But if there was no gospel, if there was no gospel to talk about, the other thing you could talk about that would change the country quickest would be marriage. It, it, so it, the gospel does what nothing else can do, but just in terms of like simple outcomes – We see this over and over again. Rate of crime, rate of teenage pregnancy, rate of lower education, uh, poverty, these things are exacerbated by family structure. And kids who do the best, who uh, stay out of jail, who have the best economic success, who have the best uh, emotional success, emotional well-being, physical, actual physical well-being, who are less incarcerated… Um these are people who will come out of uh, – this is going to sound terrible. Right Here we go. Are you ready? It's, 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 it's biological – two biological parents in a low-conflict setting. There it is, two biological parents in a low-conflict setting. Every statistic you measure, kids do better when they come out of that setting. And so if you thought, well, okay, well, I know there's lots of issues we could address, and why is the world the way it is? Well, if we could go return to a high-value – of two biological parents in a low-conflict setting, things will change, but nobody's talking about that.
2: Jim, I'm uh, paying attention to you saying two biological parents, with the redefinition of family, meaning any number of different kinds of families, Um, are are you suggesting that there's something unique about the male and female marriage that uh, would be the right context for these sorts of things to develop and flourish?
1: Yeah, and I'm not necessarily even suggesting that it's something that has to do with male, female. It has to do with biological. So you're, no, I, I've got two kids that are my biological children, but I was not raised this way, two biological parents in a low-conflict. setting. So my parents divorced when I was three. My mom never remarried, so I was raised by one biological parent in a low-conflict setting. It's okay, it was good. Could it have been better? Yes. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that you can't raise kids other ways, but you have greater challenges, and you've got to find ways to overcome the deficiency. And my mom tried her best to kind of put male role models around me that would would kind of help out with that, right? My dad was available to me, but more like an uncle. So, so that that's the challenge. Now, I've got two kids that are being raised by their biological parents in a low complex setting. They're already grown and out of the house. But I had two daughters that I adopted out of foster care. Now, they, it was better than they were. What they were up against was tough, and it would have been terrible. So now, it's it's, it's good, but we aren't their biologicals. And there's a difference, you know when my son does something, I can look at him and go ooh i I know where that's coming from <laughs> you know i, I i've been I, he gets that from me he gets that from you we how many times have you said that raising your kids mm-hmm. because it's it's a, it's helpful to to understand you look even the rate of abuse within families is Far, far higher when there are not two biological parents in a low-conflict setting. You get divorced, you remarry. Well, that—that that is, those are the homes that are far more likely to have abuse, and it's usually the non-biological. Now, I'm just going to tell you that's just from a law enforcement perspective. So, in the end, we have to ask ourselves the question: I get it. Like nobody wants to. Is that a racist thing, though? Is that a? Is that? I mean, it, to, to argue that we ought to return to something that is is biblical. Uh, I don't even call it biblical. if all you did is have research. now you could argue well that's because we're coming out of a Western tradition that's that is largely Christian, and as as, as the stigmas against other forms of marriage are reduced, you'll see that they'll have better results. Okay, that's an experiment we can probably run, but it's a costly experiment if we're wrong. And I think there are good reasons to believe that our biological relationships with our kids is the key. It's not that it's a biblical worldview. It's that when you have two biological parents who love on their kids, they've got a, and they stay together, they stay together long. Well, now all that kind of stability, all the stuff that comes with the long marriages that stay together and stay intact and take care of their kids, those are advantages. The kids who come out of those situations are, are they have advantages. And, and this this is something I think we, we, could, we could offer every single—this is the problem. We're at a place where I just said something that, believe it or not, is controversial, right? And it wouldn't have been 30 years ago.
2: Yeah, Jim, given the, the couple of generations where the, the family fracturing has, has taken place, and for the people that are living in that, assuming it's going to take another couple of generations to repair this kind of fracturing, is there a role the Church can play in the midst of the single-parent families that are really doing the best they can to try to raise their kids right now?
1: yeah it's probably not even just that i mean i i've got my kids are now married and there's there're two 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 uh two a husband and wife in the same household but both have got to work like crazy just to afford to live in california hmm. so you don't even have a chance like if i'm just trying to figure out like if if kids were to emerge in this marriage would anybody have time to pay attention to them Right, So I think the church has to recognize two things. Number one, you remember when you were, had young kids, you did not go to the restaurant you wanted to go to. You, <laughs> went to some, you went to the one that worked for the kids. You didn't go to the movie you wanted to see. You went to the one that worked for the kids. You didn't go to the vacation you wanted to take. You went to the one you could afford and would be good for the kids. You sacrificed for your kids. Well, we are a family that has kids. The church has to make decisions that I think are pro-kids because we are raising kids right now. And they're not – may not be your biological kids, but they're your kids. They're your kids in the Christian family. Oh, yeah, but I don't want to have them in the big church with us. Really? And, And that worship is kind of loud. Okay, so remember Disney movies? You remember all those Disney movies you watched? Okay, I didn't like those either, okay? But I went because I thought those were going to be good for my kids, This, of course, when Disney was Disney. But the point I'm trying to make is um, that you, you made sacrifices raising your kids, and, and we are a church now that has to make sacrifices. So that means if there are families out there that we have to step in as the, basically the uncles and aunts and grandfathers and grandmothers that are part of the church family that are willing to step in and do you know, help. Because we're raising kids, and that also means that we've got our – like I had a house church. I, was, I got saved in a megachurch, but by the time I was pastoring, I was pastoring a house church of 50, 50 people, and it was a mess. But our kids were present with us because that was focused on raising up a family. And by the way, if you're a Christian right now and you're my age, I'm 60, you're probably going to end up being a Christian all the way to the end. But if you're six, that's probably not the case right now, hmm. even though you'd be raised in the church. So it's time for us to spend more time on six-year-olds than we do on (laughs) (laughs) 60-year-olds.
0: So good. Say, just had a comment about your fact about two biological parents. We all agree with that. And do you have any research on that that can be cited, that can be used? looked at?
1: Yeah. You know, I used to have an article online. Okay. And I don't know if I have one. I think if you just type in marriage on our website at coldcasechristianity.com, something will come up. Okay, but, good. Yeah, I have tried to, to, to make that case, but it is still the fact, or just type in two biological parents, low conflict. That's something I've been saying, but that's not my term. That's a term that sociologists have been citing for probably coming up on 20 years. And I've heard other people talk about it. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty well known in the documentation. And, that, and the only pushback, of course, is that, well, yeah, it's because the, the, the culture is forcing it. And I don't think the culture is forcing it. I think it really is our biological connection to our offspring that drives all this. Mm-hmm. And that's that you can't really avoid that. Yeah, Jim, we have
0: one minute left. What do Mormons, how do they celebrate Christmas?
1: All, I mean, right now Mormons are celebrating. I mean, Mormons would call, would call themselves a denomination of Christianity. Okay. And the only way we can kind of talk to Mormons about that truth is whether or not we know anything about Mormonism. Okay. But the reality of it is, is that yeah, I think Mormons, for the most part, my family are all Mormons. They'll celebrate Christmas the same way that we will. Okay. Um, and because they, you know, that's 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 part of their belief system. It's a subset. They they actually are drafting off of the Christian uh, worldview.
0: Hmm. Thanks for spending the time with us today, Jim. Always good to talk to you.
1: Yeah, good to be with you guys. I'm sorry I'm not going to see you next. Or be with you next hour, and I'm going to miss
0: it all. i have to listen. <laughs> all right, have a great uh, Christmas. Right, talk I'll to talk you to soon. you Yeah, bye-bye. Yep, bye. Jay Warner Wallace has been our guest. You can go to coldcasechristianity.com to learn more about Jim, and you can also go to personofinterestbook.com to learn more about his brand-new book. You can download a sample chapter, and it's a great book. It's f- over 400 illustrations in it, all done by Jim himself. So we'll take a short break. When we come back, Dr. Peter Kapster and I are here to discuss uh, another character from the Old Testament. This time it's going to be Elijah, and we're going to do that with Dr. Jared Stevens. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.